Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waltrip. As always, our show is presented by Mudsack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game developers and digital artists. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com. In this episode, you'll meet Katie Jackson, art director for Fusebox. Katie is a UK-based game developer who has had a colorful career from designing playgrounds to creating art for gambling and slot games, and is now the art director on the Love Island mobile game adaptation. In addition to talking about Katie's work, we also talk about a professional trauma she underwent in the form of a catfishing job scandal that serves as a cautionary tale to anyone who's trying to find a job in the industry. If you watch the Tindler Swindler, uh, the Netflix thing, it's very similar to that. But think about it as if it was, uh, you know, something that happened to game designers and it happened to a ton of people. And um, she shares all the great details about what happened and how the man who scammed her and so many others is still at large. Katie is also a writer and is planning on releasing her own novel, Omni in the Valley of the Stars. The work is based in fantasy and has some absolutely stunning concept artwork, which you can see on Katie's site that she plugs at the end of the show. Katie believes in paying it forward in terms of her management style, and she sticks to that mantra for her interview. Without further ado, here's Katie Jackson. All right, so Katie, if you had to pick your favorite kind of art style, be it 2D or 3D or uh, watercolors or whatever, what would be your favorite favorite art style to, to work with or to, to look at? Um, to look at probably acrylics and um, gouache or gouache. Um, I've like done a lot of work with Nathan Falks and uh, Craig Mullins, and their work really speaks to me, especially the old style DreamWorks acrylics. Um, yeah, so so those sort of things, and then kind of progressing into three D. Um, I love games like Breath of the Wild and the kind of cell shading with a painterly uh, color set as well. Um, things like Akami. Yeah, I was about to say I was looking at some of your just your concept art on your on your site, and I can definitely see that that influence in your work, particularly like things like Okami. Um, there's just some absolutely rich work on there. But what is what is like the Omni and the Valley of the Stars and and things like that? Like, is that is that a game you've worked on, or is that because um, I mean the artwork on there is just very impressive. Oh, thanks. Um, so that's something that I wanted to do in my spare time. Um, I wanted to create a book. Uh, I love writing as well. I, I wanted to be an author, but I realized I wanted to actually illustrate my own books as well. So I've done a personal project, which is something that I always recommend to students. Uh, you know, really work on something that you have passion about and that's something that you want to do. Um, I think it kind of shines through with the industry as well that there's that, you know, you've got something there that's your own um, and that would be what you would love to work on. So I've written a book. I wrote most of it in um, like on the, the London Underground just on my phone and then finished it off in lockdown as well. Um, and so I've thought about those characters and those environments and I created a bit of 3D for them as well. And I was playing with a lot of different styles, but that's mainly my core style. The stuff that's on my Omni site is definitely where I want to push forward with and um, use those to illustrate the book eventually as well. 
So that's something you want to keep working on and hopefully publish one day, I take it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've just got to edit it. I've done, I think, 70,000 words. It's going to be for like young teenagers, you know, young adults. Mm -hmm. So like transitioning from, yeah, being children to teens. Uh, that's a sort of target audience that I was looking at. And I'm, I'm really passionate about, you know, Lord of the Rings and, you know, Narnia, all those mm -hmm. kind of old school authors um, and stories. So, yeah, that's that's my passion project and looking to hopefully publish it um, with a publisher here in the UK eventually. So, yeah. Yeah, I hope you're able to get that out one day because people need to see this stuff. I mean, it's really good. I got I got caught up looking more at this stuff than I did some of your other work just on on your games, just because it was so it was so. Not that your other work isn't good, but this work is just unreal. Um, it's also so different, and I think from the games you work on, and shows just how much of a the sort of how much diversity you have and your ability to sort of do whatever art style fits the project you're working on. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely um, what I've always liked to do is try and do lots of different styles and not stick to just one. I think that's really difficult, especially for people coming into the industry. It's like I've got to have a style. I've got to, you know, be able to get into the marketplace. But for me, I, I guess that's my style. I don't really know. I guess I'm still trying out a lot of different things. But yeah, I can kind of mimic different styles as well, because as an art director, you do need to be looking at lots of different styles for different IPs. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's a big passion of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point too, about a lot of people sort of feel like they have to have an identity before they even have one. And then it's sort of like the way you find that I think is by exploring those different styles, particularly as, as an artist and even a writer. Yeah to a degree, right? Um, I dabble in, in, in screenplays and indie film and things like that. I've been doing that for a while, and it's just like, you know, I was very set, you know, most of my writing career so far, I guess, on being like a drama writer. Uh, you know, watched a lot of Sopranos and Scorsese films and things like that. was really into just making dramas, but now as I've gotten older, I've experimented with horror, comedy. You know, I think doing that just helps you become a more well-rounded writer, which obviously the same thing with with artists yeah definitely um yeah I definitely would have to lean to different styles otherwise I have heard in the industry if you only have one style then that can limit you as well it can project you but it can also limit you um because then people think oh well they can only do that one style and then you'll only be hired to do that one style where if you can broaden it and have that style, but be able to do lots of other ones as well. I think that's that's golden. That's that's where the where the meat is really for for our sort of um, for. Our yeah, and you'll never really run out of work at that point, right? Because you're not pigeonholed into one one area. Yes, exactly. And it can be really difficult to go from a painterly style to manga to um, cell shading to 3d 2d but I think as long as you've got these tools in your back pocket then it will help you eventually yeah so when did you know that you wanted to pursue art as a, as a career I think from a very young age because I was always copying Disney characters and backgrounds and trying to make it look exactly like that and trying to understand their style so I think from a very very young age I've either wanted to be an author or an illustrator mm -hmm. um, and it was more towards the author route but then yeah think you know you, you, you think about where that's going to take you 
how difficult is that going to be to get into that industry? Um, and I wasn't ever very good at spelling or grammar. I found that very, very difficult to grasp from a young age. And I guess that's kind of my, you know, my kind of, I don't have dyslexia, but they said that I had a lot of learning difficulties, grasping letters and words and reading things a different way. So, so I then went into um, just following art because I thought that was where my passion was, definitely. Not sure if it was my strengths at the time because I was always told by teachers and tutors, are you sure you want to do art or, you know, you're not doing it right or you're not doing what we want you to do. Um, to the point when I was doing my GCSEs at high school, I planned what I was going to do for the main project. So the tutor was great and on board with it but then I did something totally different so I, I drew a mermaid and put gold leaf all over her and that was not what my coursework was showing I was going to do um so yeah I've kind of uh, gone against the stream I guess of education anyway um and kept pushing forward did you think that made you better as an artist to sort of even though if you had strictures within an assignment or even maybe even some of your work now where you're just like, no, maybe I need to pursue it like, you know, in my own way. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, it can be really, really difficult and you can sink or swim. And I've seen a lot of talented artists sink because they've had, you know, freelance experiences or they've just had knockbacks. But I think because I've had them very, very early on, it just made me more determined because that was all I wanted to do in the end. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's sort of where the litmus test begins for a lot of artists in any field is when you start to be rejected and the work that you put so much time into um, maybe isn't as good as you thought or you make a mistake here or there or whatever, right? But it's just how you deal with that rejection and move forward, I think, says a lot about the person and, and the artist. And you can see, you know, a clear differential between someone who's really adversely affected by that and it like kind of can destroy their work or their self-esteem and the people that are able to just take that and learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's a very difficult industry to get into. Um, and you have to have the right mindset and you have to put in the hours and you have to believe in yourself as well. Even when people are telling you, you know, to, to do otherwise. Um, but yeah, you, you get there eventually. It just might take you a bit longer. Everybody has a different path and it's been very interesting listening to other podcasts and other artists journeys and, you know, you should never really compare it with your own. Mm -hmm. You can't help to, but, you know, everybody has a different a different way that they've got into the industry, and there's no right or wrong way. Yeah, there's plenty of people that have success very early on. There's other people that um, find success much later in their career. Things can go viral, can't they now? So, you know, we didn't have that. I don't even think we had YouTube when I was, when I was training. So there wasn't tutorials. You couldn't, you had to pick up a book. You know, you had a massive 3D Max, you know, massive Bible textbook and you have to look up how to model and do things. And now everything is so um, open and accessible to people. So, yeah, the industry has definitely changed. Yeah, I can't imagine using a big sort of uh, Bible or text or whatever to sort of figure out how to use Maya um, or Max. Because when I learned that, it was like I had the Internet, you know, it was 20... 2011, 2012, um, I, I could look at resources. I could go and find a tutor. Um, you know, I, there are all these different avenues that I had, 
you know, to get better as a 3D modeler. Not that that helped too much because I was never really too good at it. But, you know, I was able to to learn it and understand it. But I can't imagine being like, I'm kind of on my own with this stuff. Yeah, exactly. In 2003, we didn't have anything like we do now. So it was it was very much sink or swim. Um, and university was, was definitely very, very difficult, um, especially for me, because I had no experience of 3D and I threw myself in there and had to learn everything from scratch. So um, a lot of the other students had done it before or they'd just come into the course to get the degree to get into the industry. So they'd had a massive play around with it or, you know, they knew people in the industry that would teach them things. So you saw these people kind of catapult above you, especially teaching their friends as well. And then you're kind of just trying to make something look real, you know, trying to model box model um, and things like that. So going from 2D to 3D was a was was really fun. I, I love 3D, but it was very tricky. So it sounds like that was just on you really to, to learn that stuff. But you had anybody that you went to for for help or did you just sort of beat your head against the wall until you got it. So I had a really good tutor out of, I don't know, we must have had about five different tutors. There was one that was particularly good. He was very patient and I could ask him questions and he was very supportive, which really helped me because unfortunately when I was at university, I developed a, a skin reaction to all the stress and I ended up not mm. being able to hold a pencil. So I was two weeks off and that's when they learnt box modelling. And I came back and I asked my main tutor, I said, can you teach me? Can, can we have some time aside? Um, considering we're paying for, for the tutors as well. Um, and he just said, ask one of your friends. So, so yeah, it was, uh, that was baptism of fire, definitely. Um, and I just had to sit there and try and figure things out. Uh, so, so, yeah, it was, it was really, really tricky. So what was that process like? How did you get better? at it i mean obviously repetition and everything but what specific things were you doing what specific things were you trying to build in order to sort of i guess create almost your own curriculum in a way um i was following a lot of textbooks um and just pulling the the program apart to understand what it does and putting everything back together and trying to figure things out and asking questions um to the tutor that that would spend the time um, but yeah, I, looking back now, it, it was really difficult because it was three years of not having um, a lot of help. So, so yeah, it was it was mainly about self teaching, and I I do say I definitely self taught myself three D modeling um, for sure. When did you start to feel confident that you were heading in the right direction? I was pretty confident in my end of year film. The, the last one that I produced because I was able to rig, animate, put music to it, edit, um, it created a character, created a little scene. And um, I went back to my roots. I put 2D in there as well. It was like a storybook that opened with little pop-ups, 2D and 3D. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I put it to um, uh, a music box that was given to me by my granddad. Um, and we... And I also got my um, my sister to read out the poem and that was in the background and that was a poem that my dad read to us about being lost in the woods, a girl that's got lost in the woods. I guess she's trying to find her path. And yeah, I, I, I really loved working on it and I even put some little particle effects of a shooting star in there. You know, all cute little things that I learnt. So yeah, I think um, 
I think I, I really enjoyed doing that project and I, I, I was confident with it. I think if even the 3D might not have been fantastic, you know, there was a whole fully rigged character in there and I I'd, I'd taught myself it all. So I was quite proud of it. Yeah, I love that. That sounds very personal. Also having all the elements of, of family from the story to your sister reading everything. Um, yeah. It just sounds like that was sort of a culmination of where you were in your life in a way. Yeah, I think so. I think it's been very important to me, definitely. Um, and my family have been so supportive um, because I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was leaving uh, college because I went to the the person that you speak to there and um, to, to explain, you know, what your passions are and, and what course you want to go on next, the advisor. And he was quite a very, very old man. And um, I said to him, I wanted to do special effects. And he said to me, ah, and he was looking it up in a textbook because this is an olden days, <laughs> 2000s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and he said, oh, you're going to need a chemistry degree. I was like, what? I hate <laughs> chemistry. I can't do physics. These are like complete opposites to what I wanted to do. And I went away from there and I realized, you know, quite a lot later on, he must have thought I meant physical special effects i wanted to go in and blow things up (laughs) and it couldn't be so far from what i wanted to do so i was completely stuck i had no idea i'd i'd gone and applied for illustration courses around the uk and was rejected by a couple of them um and then uh, a friend of of my my mum's came up with this course that was 3d animation and i and it had everything it had 2d illustration and animation in there as well and I thought oh well that sounds interesting and that's how I fell into that um and then 3D is where my whole career took off uh which wasn't expected (laughs) I just love that yeah I don't think I know any VFX people that have a uh that know anything about chemistry so that's that's hilarious (laughs) (laughs) yeah it did put me off (laughs) yeah so once you got out of school what does that look like? What 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 happens then? Um, was unemployed for a year and working as a, a waitress in my spare time. Um, doing lots of freelance gigs, loads and loads of children's book illustrations. Um, you know, and uh, in those days you had to bid for things on Elance and uh, iFreelance and all those kind of websites trying to beat everybody else's budgets and grab yourself an author so that you could you know get a few illustrations out there and I had a few published they're on Amazon they're kind of old school now <laughs> but that was really fun and that was really great working with um with my clients uh and that I grew that quite well and at one point I thought I would do it full time um but then you can't you can't get a mortgage on freelance work it's so up and down right so I realized, you know, I've got to get something, something full time. And um, I landed a job um, at Xerox as a, I ended up being a senior there within three months because I think people moved around and then, then they made me senior uh, technical illustrator. And I was illustrating manuals for the copywriting machines and using CAD and going in, taking pictures and Mm. you know renaming pages and such so that was that was three months but that was good to have on the cv and that's that's what the recruiters told me they said just stick it out for three months it's going to look great on your cv 
and I was bored to the point of tears. I mean, you know, it was <laughs> so boring. I had yeah. I was, that's not really creative at that no. point. You're just doing stuff for manuals. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It was a lovely team of very old guys, and but, but yeah, um, it was it was good to have the experience of working in a creative industry as such. So what, the, what before you went to Xerox and you were doing being a waitress and you were uh, doing the freelance stuff. Did you have time to continue to work on your 3D skills or was it just like you were really wrapped up in freelance and, and doing your, your day job? Um, yeah, I think I was more moving towards 2D. Um, my 3D skills, I just kept up with, with what was going on with 3D Max at that point. Um, but yeah, I didn't do much 3D work after graduating. Did you worry that your skills were going to sort of diminish at that point and... Did you have any concerns there? Not really, because the industry did not move that fast. In <laughs> back in that, those days, there weren't new tools coming out. 3D Max was pretty much 3D Max. Um, so you know, we were using obviously like ray tracing. That was the new thing. Um, so so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too too technical. Not like it is now, where every day there's a new tool or a new program coming out. Right. That's what I have to wonder about if someone was in a similar situation today. You know, what is that like for, for them at that point, I would wonder. Oh, yeah, it'd be completely different. You'd, you'd definitely be, you know, spending your evenings um, doing 3D and keeping on top of things and discovering all the, the new tool set and all the new programs that they've got out there and, you know, Substance, ZBrush, all the, all the new ones that keep coming out um, and the ones that people expect you to know to get into the industry these days. Yeah, like I remember when I was in school, like Mudbox was a big, or um, was it Mudbox or it was something Autodesk made, and it was very similar to, to kind of Max and Maya, yeah. at least from what I, what I remembered. And then, but then when you tried to get into the industry, like no one cared that you knew that. Yeah. Right. It was just like figuring out which things you have to know. I mean, it's it should be evident at this point, right? But even when I was in school, I was like, well, do I need to know? Mudbox, like I think ZBrush is way more important than that. But you know, it's hard to know what people are exactly exactly what you need to be doing and exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. In terms of employers. Yeah, it's the same with degrees as well. You know, did I need a d degree to get my first job? Probably not. Have I needed a degree to get any of my jobs? Has anybody asked to see my degree or what? You know, mark I got for my degree. Nobody has ever asked. So unless I want to move countries. Of course, a degree is very, very useful. But next time around, would I say to people they should definitely go to university? I would not. I would say, you know, go and start learning yourself. Um, go and train, train or, you know, do a short course like at Escape Studios in London, which is a three month course. You'd learn a hell of a lot more there than you would in three years um, in the industry. You know, so. Yeah, I think that's really interesting now is like there's always this pressure growing up of you got to go to school you got to go to college yeah. you got to do this you got to do that and it's like particularly for the arts yeah i don't think it's necessary at all i mean i think there are certainly benefits you can learn a lot you can take advantage of of the resources that you're given you can network and meet people that you might work with outside of school but in terms of learning the core skills you don't you don't need school at all i don't think for that yeah, it's quite funny you say that actually about networking because um, my ex-tutor, the one that said, go and ask your friends, 
He lives down the road. I've seen him in the chip shop. But he also owns a company as well down the road. Um, and they're recruiting for art directors and such. Um, and I think it's a VR company that he runs now. So it's quite interesting uh, who you would like to work with. And, you know, you, you'd, you know, I think you have to be very careful with people in the industry. Everybody does know everybody. Um, mm-hmm. it's a very small industry. You, you know, somebody that knows somebody always. So right. yeah, that's a, that's definitely a top tip to keep it professional. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So after, after Xerox, what, what happens? I quit Xerox because I'd met a guy at the place I waitressed. He was one of my regulars. Um, he used to come in with his wife and he had a media company and he said, you know, would you like to come and work with me part-time doing account management, bits and pieces, invoicing and such, and I'm going to get an office. And I was like, well, that sounds great. It's better than Xerox. So I was like, right, I'm out of here with Xerox. They were like, are you sure you want to go? I was like, yep, I'm going. So I went and worked with this guy for eight months in his office um, in Portobello Road, which is a lovely area. Um, and that was great. It gave me a lot of confidence. I had to do a lot of cold calling. I had to do um, a lot of editing uh, with Avid. And I met a lot of stars um, along the way as well, uh, like Sir Ian McKellen and uh, oh, cool. uh, Kevin Spacey. And, you know, it was it was great because you were you were doing a lot of interesting things um, and working, you know, day and night with the uh, camera teams um, met a lovely camera guy who did a lot of underwater stuff for the BBC. So yeah, it was it was really interesting, a lot more interesting than Xerox. I'm really glad I did that. So yeah, that was eight months and that was part time as well as the waitressing. That's cool. Yeah, especially like because then you're you're acquiring more skills, not necessarily skills that are going to you know that directly relate to what you want to do, but in terms of like interpersonal skills, uh, I can think of no better training than cold calling. Yes, yeah, because they're like, why are you calling? <laughs> so, what are you selling us? Um, so, yeah, really not fun to do it, but I'm glad that he pushed me to do it because it did it did help, definitely. Okay, so you're at, you're at this media company. What was, what was the project with Ian McKellen? I'm a huge fan of his, so I just have to ask. Oh, yeah, he was lovely to meet as well, and he signed. Uh, <laughs> I've got his signature framed downstairs, and it's on the back of one of the permission slips that I was getting people to fill out. Um, so that was quite cool. He says, best wishes, Katie. I was like, yes. Um, That's great. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I think it was a young person's awards ceremony and they had him there, uh, Davina McCall from the UK and they had Kevin, Kevin Spacey, who I, I only saw because I, I bumped into him um, coming out of a door. <laughs> was a bit shocked. Um, he's yeah. Very, very short. But anyway, yeah. So yeah, Ian McKellen was there giving out uh, awards, which was which was great. And I had no idea I was going to meet him, so that was lovely. Yeah, it sounds like it. So when you're actually getting into the industry, is, is you get into industry after working for eight months of this company, or is there a little bit more sort of transition stuff? You're dealing with recruiters too, right? They're probably telling you all the things you need to be doing to build portfolio and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm constantly training. Um, and trying to get my portfolio there and still trying to freelance and doing some, you know, illustrations on the side as well. Um, at that point, I then went and joined um, the Sherlock Holmes Museum as their graphic designer. 
Um, I'd never done graphics design before. <laughs> I'd done illustration though, and that's what they were looking for. They were looking for somebody that could um, do a lot of illustration. So I stayed there for nine months um, after that and uh, was working there full time. And that was probably my first full time creative role, I would say. So what's your mindset like at that point? Are you sort of settling in the museum stuff or is it still like this is just a stepping stone? You know, I'm learning more stuff, but this is not where I want to be. Just a stepping stone because the, the yeah. place and the people were very crazy. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't your normal workplace at all. Um, we had Dr. Watson, you know, walking around. We had Sherlock Holmes with his magnifying glass. These are really, really old guys. Um, and and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't exactly what I wanted to, to do, and it wasn't clear clearly defined what I was meant to be doing there as well. It was like a bit of website design was happening as, at the same time, and souvenirs I was designing and brochures. Um, so yeah, at that point, I I actually handed in my notice. I was like, this isn't what I want to do. I'm sure I can find something else. And then it was 2009, and recession hit, and I was out of work for a year. Oh man. Yeah, not a not a good time to leave. Um but yeah. But then but then after that I was applying for a lot of roles and that's when I went into um Monster Play, which is a playground company doing uh visualization and creating playgrounds for children in schools and parks and I was there for four years. Uh, using 3D Max. So I was about to say that must be a lot of that must be just strictly 3D work, unless you're concepting stuff out. Yeah, that was strictly 3D. They they did allow me to do some 2D and see if that would look nice on some of the plans and uh, and we used a bit of 2D there as well. But then that's where my training really ramped up because I realized I didn't want to just do 3D anymore. I wanted to get into games and I actually yeah. wanted to do concept art. So that's when my training really got serious. And when you're what are you learning so far about all the different places you're working at in terms of how to interface with folks and work together as a team was what what were those lessons like back then? So yeah, I guess at Monster Play that was the first team that I worked with um, that were actually you know other creatives there, mm -hmm. and they were very nurturing um, and showed. I asked so many questions. I I had no idea you know of half of the things that I needed to to know to do my job there and um, they were very very patient and it was a very small company it was a family-run company uh, so we're all in one room together and um, I think that that's that's probably where I learned more <laughs> um, 3D than I did definitely at university um, and I got really quick and really good at it and they the the lead um, would always ask me to to work with him so that was really great. Um, and there was good progression there as well. So, so yeah, it, it was, I think that that's where I learned how to be in a workplace and how to conduct myself and how to work as part of a team. Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds like that must've been like the real formative place. Like you were saying, like this is when you kind of mastered 3d, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. So now you're ready to get into games. You're, you've been at this place for four years. Uh, what what happens next? Yeah, so I did want to get into games. I wanted to do mostly 2D because I started training with Bobby Chu and with Schoolism. Um, back then, it, they weren't very well known. Now they are huge. Um, 
but yeah I was it was in the first few years of them opening up their doors and it was an online course and I'd never had anything like that before like I said before we didn't have courses we didn't have YouTube we didn't have anything except books um uh so so yeah I trained really really hard um with Nathan Falks um who really pushed me and he he would just be very very critical of the work and not as you as a person which was something I wasn't used to um and that really made me want it even more um that they could obviously see that they were spending their time helping me um and that it was worth it so so I was working at Monster Play and I was doing a full day there and then I was coming home and I was working until midnight most nights doing coursework and trying to understand and looking at you know other people's coursework and um getting a lot of help from from Bobby Chu and Nathan uh to progress so I think once I grasped what I hadn't learned at school which was a lot of the basics uh, of color and light and shape and form and um things that we seem to miss on the curriculum here all the basics that you need once I understood that I needed to go back and I needed to to redo things and rethink I think that's when my career started to take off um because I was looking to interview with King and I went and interviewed with them and this is before Candy Crush this was when they were looking at doing Bubble Witch so I interviewed with them and then a few other companies um like there was a company that that did very old school medieval games and they were asking me to do UI I didn't know what UI was <laughs> I did a <laughs> test but yeah they 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 weren't sure so I I wasn't sure either we both weren't sure where this was going to go so then um I applied with a company uh called Digiment and was accepted as a junior games artist and started to get the ball moving with them and um yeah quit quit the 3D visualization industry and was going to go in and do concept art uh 2D yeah that's I mean that's a lot too right when you're getting this sort of higher level education while you're doing a job I mean how many hours are you working a week at that point oh so I'd be doing um I think it was quite early eight until five and then I'd come home and then from six till midnight I, I would be uh, training and I knew that if I just put in the hours there just put them in that eventually things would start clicking into place and I'd understand what I needed to do and I'm really glad I did and I know that they say you know you're doing the hard work now and then eventually you won't have to do this every single day um so yeah that went on for for quite some time because uh, I think each of the courses were six weeks and I have, have done quite a few of their courses now. Did you ever run out of steam or have any, any doubts about what you were what you were doing or was it like, I'm doing this no matter what, like bring it on? <laughs> I think I thought, well, what else have I got to lose? I've got a job, I'm doing 3D. If I can get my 2D up to the level I want as well and I can really go in and actually draw and paint and that's what I really wanted to do. Um, then I can always fall back on my 3D and that's what I've always been able to do, which has been, you know, I think that's really helped me get into the industry and 
um, and in all of my jobs, 3D, until now, until my recent job, I've always used 3D and I've been the 3D artist usually at um, the companies that I've joined. And you're not really, a, you've never been a teacher, right? No, but I nearly went into it. I nearly went into teaching very, very close. I, w I actually had applied and I'd gone for the interviews to start my training as a teacher. And then that week I got the Monster Play um, acceptance uh, from the interview and I then went that way. Otherwise, I definitely would have looked at going into being an art teacher. Wow, so things could have gone very differently. Yeah, sometimes I still get emails from, from them about the, uh, about the teaching courses. Um, and yeah, I still play it back now. I go into colleges and universities and I go and I talk to, to um, budding students in there and also high schools. I've done a few talks. So, so uh, yeah, it's, um, it's something that I would have enjoyed doing because I would have liked to have helped other people get into the industry. But now I feel I'm doing that from a different um, from a different perspective now. Right, because I was going to say, like, how influential was the, the, the teaching style of, of someone like Bobby Chu on you in terms of how you treat, you know, your team now as an art director? Yeah, um, I guess they're, they're very open. And I think Bobby Chu particularly is, is very, very lovely with his constructive criticism. Nathan Fawkes was more, um, you know, you're not getting this right, you need to get this right. And I'd be like, but I don't understand. <laughs> so yeah, their styles were both very, very different. And I took Bobby Chu's course first and he was very much hand holding. And he's like, yeah, I can see, you know, these bits are good, but these bits you need to improve on. So I think that style, um, I've been able to play forward definitely when I'm managing uh, other artists, but other artists that are more senior or lead then it's more the direct approach, like Nathan, but but you know, um, not so stern, <laughs> just uh, just just a helping hand. And that, and that makes a lot of sense, considering, you know, like right if you're dealing with like a junior artist, you're going to talk to them differently than a senior or a lead. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how I've always managed, and that's always been, um, you know, my advice to new managers or lead artists that are you know going to manage a team. You have to manage every single person differently. They all think differently. They all react differently. They've all got different mental health problems. Um, you know, you just don't know until you know those people inside out, how they tick and, and how you're going to get the best out of them. And people do, um, yeah, people react differently. And that's something I've learned um, from becoming a lead and then on to director. So... But there was a time when the industry wasn't so kind to you uh, when you were involved in this absolutely insane catfishing story where you were promised a job, you were never paid. And um, I think there's definitely a ton of lessons to be learned uh, for our audience in terms of when they're taking a job out of school, what to watch out for, or rather not just in school, but at any point in time. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, when I was leaving Monster Play after four years in the industry, um, I had a really good career there. Um, we bought a place, so we had a mortgage to pay. Um, and yeah, I, I took the chance. I was with the recruiter. They're a, you know, a normal recruiter. There's nothing to worry about. They're the ones that got me, you know, the interview with King. And then 
that didn't happen. So then they got me an interview with Digimon and they're like, oh, you know, they're looking for a junior artist as well. So went for it, got it, did the interview, did it at um, some London offices. It all looked shiny, looked amazing. Met the art director there as well. They looked at my work. I kind of did a bit of their artwork and um, did my own take on it. They were like, loved it. So I was like, great. Um, took a little while for, for the offer to come through. Um, but then when it came through, I was then waiting for the contract to come through. That took some time. That, that should have probably put alarm bells ringing. But because I'd never been in the industry, I wasn't really sure what to expect. And it was about a month later, they finally got the contract. There was kind of um, excuses like, oh, the lawyer's place flooded. Uh, all of the, the laptops don't work. The lawyer's trying to get you this contract. I was like, right, uh, God, the place flooded. Okay, it's in Oslo, so maybe it's flooded. <laughs> yeah. Wow, okay, well, we'll just wait a bit longer. But then, yeah, so that, that happened. Contract came through. I was like, great, I can finally leave. Um, skipping around, leaving, leaving my job um, that I did love, but yeah, there was only so many playgrounds I wanted to design. So yeah, I went went off into the sunset and thought that would be great, but unfortunately, it got to the point where I was meant to be into the office, and I went the night before to the train station, bought my monthly ticket, was ready to go the next day. And then uh, the manager, the CEO said that the offices aren't ready yet. Could you work from home for a bit longer? I was like, oh, okay, I'll work from home, but you're going to have to send like a computer or something. Eventually I can use my own one for, for now. And so they were fine with that. They linked me into um, the, the, the main art director that was based in Oslo. Um, he took me under his wing, was showing me how to do some colour and light for, for one of the games. Um, and then, yeah, I was doing bits and pieces and then I started to chat to the other two uh, employees and eventually it became apparent that they hadn't been paid and I was saying to the director, well, you know, I'm going on holiday soon so I, I really need to be paid. I put these holiday dates in before I started and then um, he seemed to get very, very angry with us. He got on a phone call and was shouting at all of us for talking to each other and was going a bit crazy. And, you know, of course you're going to get paid and, you know, all, all of that. I was like, okay, okay. And he's like, you know, my wife has told me that I should sack all of you. And I was just like, uh, okay. Um, you know, was, yeah, calling, calling you names and all sorts I was like, wow, I don't really understand what is going on now. Um, and how long had it been? A month. At this point? This had been a month. A month. Yeah, I'd been there no a month. No pay. No pay. Um, got a pay slip uh, when I was on holiday, but no pay. And I just knew it. I just knew that something dodgy had gone on. And then a family member of mine had searched the internet, and I think 20 pages into the internet found a depression forum and there was a person on there from New Zealand who mentioned this person's name, who runs the company, who still runs the company, and said that they had um, lost 30 grand of their own money because this person came over to New Zealand. He was the person that, um, that lost the money was a coder. And I think he put some code out there and uh, this guy had 
seen it and was like, right, let's start a company together. And apparently the other times he came over to New Zealand, he was just found in the casinos, even though the coder had put all this money in, had a team, they were making the game, but there was no company, there was no, no funding, no investors like it had been promised. So he eventually left and um, he, was, uh, he suffered from depression and left the industry, um, became a Jeez. yoga teacher. So I found this, I found, I, I dug deep, found his email address and contacted him and he could not believe that this guy was still doing it. Because we're talking about 1990s when this happened um, to him. And this is now, you know, early 2000s um, and this was still happening. So, and he was still operating out of London. So I took him to court, I won. He didn't show up, and they said at that point he, you know, I've got the um, the court documents which are now out of date. I've never been paid. He's never paid me, even though he was demanded by the court to pay. I also got um, enlisted sheriffs to go after him, and every time they would get to his his office, it would move. So it wasn't a real office. It was just an address. And this happened three times. So now I'm running out of money, trying to get money from him with a mortgage to pay. And court costs, I had to pay to go to court to get money. And I never got those court costs back. And the two guys I worked with, they had to pull out because they couldn't afford court. Because, yeah, they, they were, one of them was over here. One of them was based in Sweden. Um, but nobody ever got paid. Or if they did, it was only a very small amount. And then... It wasn't the right amount and it was just kind of tidbits. Um, so, yeah, I, st I stopped working straight after I didn't get paid. Um, and then there was a lot of abuse coming my way. You know, you can't, you shouldn't be stopping the work and blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, I'm stopping. I'm done. What did the recruiter say about all this before it escalates to, you know, you go into court and all this stuff? Yeah, so the recruiter... Um, they said they haven't been paid either and they were taking him to court. So the recruiter felt incredibly bad for, for me and the art director. And um, he tried to find us another job and he did. And he placed us with a real company, with real money. And um, yeah, that, that was uh, our saving grace because it's about two, three months of no wage. Uh, it was becoming the winter, it was going into October, I think I started in June or July, um, and, you know, going into your savings to pay for the roof over your head was not ideal, um, so yeah, I was getting a little bit tricky, because I've always been, you know, the one that would be able to earn more, so it, it was, yeah, it was a lot on my shoulders, and it, we were totally taken in, and the fact that, you know, uh, a guy that used to work at, you know, CD Project, who was our, my art director, he was taken in as well. Um, it, it, it was done very cunningly. And uh, like I said, the guy still operates, the company's still there. Um, and to this day, we've never been paid and he's never acknowledged it. But he is a bit of a psychopath. I did say to him that the guy from New Zealand says hello and that's the only email he ever replied to after all this started. And he said, oh, yeah, say I say hello back. I was like, oh, you're, you're a very dangerous person. 
um, to see him, you know, there's photographs on his Instagram and all sorts of him going off to the private island, playing tennis with Richard Branson. And he's now trying to cure blindness. I did reach out to Richard Branson, but obviously they probably have no idea um, because he's that good. He's that good at yeah. what he does. Um, and he's, he's still still doing what he wants. So, so yeah, that... Um, that was a real horrible way to get into the industry. Um, I have made it very like uh, people aware of him and the company on my platform, on my LinkedIn. I've pushed it out quite a few times and people have been very positive and um, shared it as well. So hopefully people will find the information they need online to steer clear. And I would just say, please do your homework. Like um, if we could find it 20 pages into the internet and if you, you know, if it's a new company, you know, if something doesn't smell right, then definitely check it out. Um, but it was, yeah, very, very uh, cloak and dagger and it was done very well, unfortunately. Well, it's just <laughs> insane to me that you won in court, he's ordered to pay and you still haven't got any money. Nope. Nope. It just doesn't make sense why they can't track this guy down and force him to, you know, pay what you're owed and what I'm sure a lot of other people are owed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would like to go into London one time and try and find him. Um, but yeah, because the thing was, was that I was only awarded the one month because that's when I started the court proceedings. But actually, I stayed employed by them for the full three months. I didn't work for the next two months. I left it hoping that I would get paid or that, you know, things would work themselves out. Um, and they didn't. And then after those two months, I resigned. So actually, I, I should have actually been owed three months pay. Um, but yeah, it never materialized. Uh, and I don't think it ever, it ever, ever will, unfortunately. Yeah, you're at the point now where you're sort of just like, like I got to just stop pursuing this. Or you still just feel like you need to get what's yours and with I assume a bunch of interest at this point um so it was such a long time ago I think it was 2016 so actually the court dates now it it wouldn't be applicable they I wouldn't be able to enforce it I'd have to go back through the whole system and do it again oh wow (laughs) yeah because yeah it's only for a few years I think four or five years so we're, we're definitely out of time now unfortunately yeah um, but yeah, I definitely wouldn't pursue it anymore for my own mental health. I reckon, uh, it's yeah. best to leave it be and just warn people of it. And if anybody came to me and asked me, it's still on my CV. I've still got it there. Um, then yeah, I'd definitely be able to, to give them advice on that one. <laughs> how, how are you doing mentally at this point? Having gone through that, not like now, but like, and in the moment, right? Like, are you sort of like, you know, forget the industry or is it kind of like, okay. I mean, obviously you landed in a much better spot and the recruiter helped you out, but how long did it take to sort of recover and be able to focus on your work again? Oh, straight away. I think I, I'm very, I've always had a very strong work ethic and I'm very strong with my mental health. I've never had any mental health problems probably until that point. And I didn't know what was going on in that October it was kind of all a little bit of a blur um but I just kept thinking every day this is going to be sorted we're going to get this sorted out you know I think I just had the hope there 
and that's what propelled me forward and then I was like right this is kind of like all the other setbacks I've had in school and and such let's just let's just go for it we I need to get into this other company because the art director was placed there first and he was like I'm going to bring you with me I need you as my junior artist I was like great and we'd we'd got a, a we definitely had bonded through the whole experience um and um yeah then as soon as I got placed there which I knew I would I went for an interview um, and as soon as I was placed, I was um, fully into it. And it was a, a great company to be there. And I was there for, for a short time um, before I wanted to move on and get more into the industry. But yeah, I was doing 3D work. I was doing some character designs. And um, yeah, it was for, for a, a, a lottery company. Um, so it was very, very different. It's not the sort of games I thought I'd get in. If you see my Omni work, I really thought I'd be, you know into some kind of fantasy RPGs. Um, we didn't really have mobile gaming then. Like I said, this was before Candy Crush. So that hadn't opened up then. This was basically, you're gonna get into console or that, or film. That Those were the industries you could go into. So so this was, um, this lottery company, it was HTML5, it was, you know, all on the internet. Like, um, like Google Earth satellite image, it was that, and you'd go and dig up spaces and find treasures and things. So, so yeah, we we were very creative there, and we we had a good time. Was that the same company where you worked on a lot of the different slot games you've you've created? So no, and, I then and gambling went, games. No, I then went to Gaming Realms because they stopped doing character work at Geolotto. Um, so I went into gambling games and they were like, yeah, we need someone to do characters. We don't have anybody that does 3D. So I was like, OK, great. I do 3D. Um, and that's what I fell back on again. <laughs> I did 3D. I learned they wanted me to learn Blender. So I learned it within the week um, that I was there. I was there uh, one week learning Blender and Unity, got my assets into Unity, animated in Unity, never used Unity or Blender. Um, and uh, yeah, then from there, I was their, their 3D artist because uh, they, they had a great concept artist there. She was terrific and she did a lot of character art. But, I, but because she did the characters, they said, you can't do characters. And I was like, what? I can't do characters. Like, no, she does the characters. I was like, fine, I'll do backgrounds. And so I wanted to get really good at backgrounds. And that's why I mainly <laughs> do a lot of environment art now, which I love which is where it all opened up with um, with Nathan Fouts. So I'm still training at this point, still still training with uh, with schoolism. And what did you think of Unity when you first got into it? Um, I mean, it sounds like you you conquered it pretty fast, but w w what did you think of it then? What do you think of it now? Yeah, it's very different now. Now it's really scary. Back then, there wasn't much to it. You know, you put your assets in there, you animate. I was animating... Um, 3D and 2D, by the end of it, we moved everything over to HTML5. So I was using Spine. And then, um, yeah, I was doing some animations with Spine and some animations in um, Unity. Um, I was doing some, like, uh, pre-rendered stuff from Blender, throwing that into Unity. That was quite fun. We were doing some 3D stuff as well with, like, kind of, uh, like, uh, Indiana Jones-style um, with mummies and, you know, chains and whips and, you know, you've got to kill these mummies in a certain time and things like that. And then we would do kind of Candy Crush stuff. So it was a lot of different styles going on because it was slot games. Um, and you could basically do whatever you wanted, you know, you come up with a theme, 
they come up with the math model um, and then you could just uh, go in there and, and pick whatever kind of art styles you liked. And that's what I liked about gambling games industry. I mean, the pay is very, very good in gambling games as well. Um, but also the, the range of styles and, you know, you can you can you know play to your strengths, which is re was really fun and it wasn't limiting at all. Um, so, yeah, that was really great. Cool. Yeah. And I bet also just having an idea of what the, you know, what the game is going to be. It's rather, you know, with those kinds of games, it's in terms of the, the scope of it, right? I mean, it's very like everything's right in front of you as a player. So it's sort of like, you know, like having those kind of parameters, I imagine would be good in terms of just knowing exactly what you need to do. There really isn't like a way you can really branch out of, of, the, the stricture of, of what a slot game is, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you get kind of like, um, like when I moved to, to Camelot, when I went to the National Lottery, you get lots of like mini games that you can do, um, you know, some kind of uh, predetermined games as well. But, you know, the themes are what really drove me um, because I just wanted to get better. And it didn't matter if it was 2D or 3D. I could do both. And I just wanted to keep pushing the creativity and pushing the level for myself. Because um, I remember there was a recruiter and I was trying to get into even gambling games right at the beginning. And I remember her just saying, you know, on LinkedIn, you've got such a great presence, but this is, this is the level we need. And it was, a, it was a, a gambling games artist and her work was so good and it was so creative. And I thought, Oh, okay. So there is scope for that in that industry. And, you know, a lot of people do look down on it. It's gambling games, but purely for the art, I was, I was very happy just to do the artwork. Obviously, I think towards the end, morals took over and I really wanted to get out of there. And I think that happens to a lot of artists, but for a training ground and for salary, it was great. It was um, it was a very steady job, and those companies are still going today. You know, they haven't folded; they're still there. That's another thing too. You can produce those games. I imagine like development time on each game isn't too long compared to you know bigger games. Yeah, it's it's a very quick turnaround. Unless we were doing like hero games, which had a lot of um, had a lot of time put into them. I think we did one called like Dragon Island and we'd use spine for the first time and each dragon had like 80 bones in them. And these are tiny, tiny little dragons. And, you know, we were trying to figure out how to animate without meshes um, and just using spine for the first time as well. Uh, so, so yeah, the, it was really good because like I said, it's a training ground. You can use whatever you need to get the job done. If it's spine or unity or 3D or just 2D. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was, I think that's probably where I learned the most about the creative side of the industry. Oh, cool. So now, now you're doing the Love Island game and this is your first time being an art director, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, at Camelot, I went to, uh, progress to lead artist, um, and then propelled into art director, um, which has been brilliant, um, it's, it's been a really, really interesting experience. Uh, I learned a lot at Camelot of managing people and different types of people to then, you know, develop my management skills and being art director. I've done everything from like org charts, roadmaps, budgeting, to doing hands-on work myself. 
Um, and then to where I'm really passionate about moving into um, mentoring younger artists, um, getting them trained up and skill sharing and then propelling them into the industry. That's been really, really rewarding. And that's I think you can tell by my whole journey why that's been so important to me to be able to help those artists. It's not about me producing a style that everybody's got to follow or being master of the universe. It's more about those artists getting to where they should get to and giving them the helping hand that I guess I've had, but I've paid for it. <laughs> like I had to pay for it. I didn't have anybody just like, yeah, on my side um, throughout the, um, the, I don't even know how many years it's been. 15 years that I've been in the industry now. So, yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, you seem like a very pay it forward person. So to be in a position of power, you know, as an art director and then be able to say, I'm priding myself mostly on helping the young artists find their way in the industry. I mean, I think that is just a really beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what I'm all about. There's there's not much, not much else to it um, for me. Um, and I think at Fusebox, I was able to do that. Um, I had at the start a great team of artists. They were all very, very different. They've all got jobs in the industry now um, in mobile games. So, so yeah, I was, I was really glad that I could help them um, in different ways. Each of them were very, very different and uh, managed them very differently and understood where they wanted to go and what they had to do to get there. So that's been really great. And I think um, for, the, for the future, we will be... Uh, looking at um, younger artists again coming fresh from the industry and that's what I'm really looking forward to with uh, exploring with Fusebox with uh, being a helping hand again for, for future um, artists yeah well, that's that's awesome well actually I wanted to switch gears a little bit to the, the work on on Love Island how did you guys decide what the art direction like the look for it the aesthetic because when I look at it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Grand Theft Auto loading screens, if you're familiar with that, that kind of style. Yeah, so um, Love Island's a really interesting one. Each season, the art style changes, and I joined halfway through season three, so the art style had already been picked. Um, they didn't have an art director. They had a lead artist then, and it was very, um, very different to season two. Season two was more... A Grand Theft Auto and um, uh, a bit more re realistic, whereas season three was more cartoony and, uh, you know, bigger features, bigger eyes. Um, but the anatomy was much better on season three. So there was like, yeah, it was it was a different switch. But the one thing that I brought to it was the backgrounds, which was what I've always been passionate about ever since um, kind of being forced down that avenue into environment art. And, um, and yeah, they were using um, blurred photos. So I was like, no, we've got to get background art in here. It's got to tell the story. We need emotion and colour and light. Yes, you've got the characters, but you've got to have some kind of backgrounds in here. So that's what we really worked on. And I had a great artist who that was definitely his passion. So we were able to, to, to get those going. And those have stayed in. And now I think we're on season five. So um, season four, I set the style. 
So we listened to our players. We knew that they wanted to, to have a bit more realism from season two. So slowly moving away from season three, which did okay, it was fine. But I think our fan base, who are very, very passionate, wanted something more realistic. These are IF games. They want to be able to imagine themselves with these characters. And if they're too cartoony, it's just too far removed. Um, so we heard that we didn't want to go completely back to season two, but we, we were working on it. So season four was a bit more realistic. And then um, I went on maternity leave halfway through season four. So even season five, that art style was already set from season four. So, so yeah, I guess I'd be having, I'm working on a new IP with Fusebox at the moment, which is really, really exciting because I get to set. I finally get to set the art style and I'm exploring so many different styles um, from really simple, simple ones to more painterly. You know, we're looking for something really edgy and different. And I think it's really exciting now. I think Love Island is its own kind of brand, its own core. Um, you know, it's our core game. So there's only so much I can do with that. Um, but the new one. Uh, we're really going all for it now and uh, it's been really, really exciting to work on something and actually do some of the artwork myself as well these past couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, this is now I feel I'm going into more of the art director role, not just the management side. So, yeah, it's, it's really progressing at Fusebox. Yeah, that's, that sounds great, especially with like sort of having a blank canvas, right? Because I imagine working on and, and, you know, some of the games you worked on before, the, the Slack games, you know, they're based on IP. Some of them were, I think. So it's like you always have to come back to that in terms of what the style fits for something that's already been previously previously established. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was in charge of Monopoly at Camelot, and that's a huge IP, and you had to make sure everything everything went through quite a few different product owners um, on our side and then also with Hasbro. So that was that had to be perfect. And new assets, they had to you know, look like they belong to the Monopoly universe. So so that yeah. was very restricting. And then Love Island, not so restricting. I can do, you know, parts of parts of it, but um, it is owned by ITV, so it is their IP again. So with this new one, this is 100% ours. Um, and I just get to have a bit of fun. So that's actually, that's actually been really rewarding at the moment. Um, yeah, setting up a new team and also uh, working on a new IP. Yeah, that's great. Can you tell me a little bit more about how your pipeline is being set up in terms of art direction for this new game? Yeah, I mean, our pipeline has definitely changed since we uh, have outsourced more work recently rather than keeping it in-house. So we've got different branches of outsourcers. We've got one that does like the engine and some of the testing. And then we've got another one that does the artwork. Um, so at the moment, it's all new. Um, I'm kind of setting all of that up. Uh, we're just prototyping different art styles at the moment with the narrative team um, and seeing what works with their characters because they're the ones developing the characters and writing the stories. And they're a massive part of, you know, of, of the company. Um, and I work incredibly closely with them and their team. So that's what's really different with um, IF games as to just like slots and such. I've never had a, a narrative team that I've worked with before until Fusebox. Um, but it's, it's really it's really good and we get everybody's buy-in. So the pipeline is going to be um, doing some of the work in-house. Um, we're going to be looking at getting the style down 
And then we're going to look at outsourcing a lot of the work. Um, whereas if we're going to move to more in-house teams, then we will we'll be looking at internal um, you know, processes, uh, which we have done on the other games where we were starting to get the team ready to use Unity and get the assets into Unity themselves to check them. Um, and that's how the pipeline would uh, would end with art anyway. But we, we start very, very early on just from narrative and from scripts and just get asset lists and go from there. And that must be cool also be able to have, like like you were saying, have a narrative department. How receptive are they to you in terms of you giving them feedback? And I guess vice versa too, if they're giving feedback to you on, on the direction of the art. Yeah, I mean, they definitely know what they like and what they don't like. That's for sure. Um but um, we're, we're all fully remote now, so um, we're, we're very diplomatic and we, we, we make sure that we're giving constructive criticism. And I think that we all work really well together. Um, so, so, yeah, we only just met up recently in the flesh for the first time in a couple years. Um, but, yeah, I think everybody at Fusebox, doesn't matter which team it is, the old team, the new team, the one thing that everybody is on board with is creating, you know, just a really good game, a game that, you know, we're proud of. And I think that that's always shone through with the narrative team and the art team. You know, we've, we've always just wanted to do our best for our fans and our players. Um, and we listen to them. We read everything. Um and we digest it and we do a lot of um, data testing. You know, I make sure that an art style has been tested before we then go and push it out there. Um, I do a lot of data and insight. They're very, very important to, to my development with, um, with the new IP as well. So they would like review what you guys have been working on. Do they like submit anything to any fans or anything like that? Or how do they get that information back to you? Yeah, we do A-B testing. So we, we will test different styles. We'll put out Facebook ads. Um, you know, the, there'll be like banners and such and find out the click-through rates. And then we'll actually look at the data, you know, if they were male, female, where they're from, you know, all that kind of um, stuff to make sure that we're hitting the target audience. And we figure out which way to go in we've even done stuff with love island we've put out surveys in game surveys like you know which famous person you know would you would you rather be with and we've put like a list of them and that's been very interesting um because it kind of shows how young a lot of our base is um so so yeah um we do it we do a lot of that to make sure that we're on track for sure yeah and does doing that, I mean, though I'm, yeah, it sounds like it's super beneficial to do that, but is there also a little bit maybe on your end where you're like, this is kind of like what we're thinking and we, we really believe in this? Like, have you gotten like something that you were, you felt so strongly about and then gotten feedback from the fans or through that data, right? Where it's like, that's, they're not into it or something like that. Is it, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is like, is, is giving the audience that much sort of not control, but mm. giving them that much power to have that feedback, can it negatively impact the work that you're doing? I think you have to know what questions you're asking for sure and not go too, too much into the detail. Um, and that's what we do because, you know, there was times like I, I was interviewing with Lionhead and they were ready to, to post and I had everything autographed the books were all autographed you know the concept art was there we were playing the beta version and then a week later microsoft pulled Lionhead, and that's because they took 15 years to make the next fable because they were constantly reviewing 
um, what people were saying and they were changing and changing and changing it. So I'm very much aware that, you know, we're not going to ask the audience, do you prefer green or red? You know, we can't go to that to that level. But it's very important mm -hmm. to understand if they're enjoying the user experience, if things could be better, um, where we can improve upon, um, not chasing our tail, but just making sure that we are on track with, you know, the, the principles of the game and um, the design pillars. Um, but it's it's more of a high level. We wouldn't go into the nuts and bolts of every single art choice or decision, but it's good to know if we're on track. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And also, yeah, being about just like kind of at a high level is, are we going in the right direction? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If there's someone out there listening who's either about to graduate from school or is trying to break into the industry, what sort of an outline would you give them to sort of like be like, these are the things you need to do to sort of build up a routine, like a training sort of regimen, like how you were able to, you know, learn Max, learn Unity, learn all these things, sort of like, you know, you're jumping into it, yeah. you're doing it yourself, you're learning, you're mastering stuff. Yeah. What, what, what advice would you give someone on like building that routine? Because I feel like if you don't start with a good foundation there, mm -hmm. you're never going to get where you want to go sort of deal. Yeah, for sure. I think it's probably been said a million times, but the, the one piece of advice I would give is get a passion project. You know, you have to, and then, you know, act like that's what you're working on, that you're actually in the industry. This is what you're working on. Look at other people and, you know, look at the sort of level you need to be at. Because I remember speaking to my parents and showing them really cool artist work. I can't even remember who it was now, but I was like, look at this work. It's amazing. And my parents turned around and they're like, yeah, but you need to be able to do that. And I was like, you're joking. I can't do that. They're like, no, you have to be at that level. That's the level. And I'm like, right. Okay. And so you have to do it about something you're passionate. And I think a, a passion project is the best way to do it because, you know, it was really nice that that's the first, um, things that we spoke about was was Omni and I guess that you can probably see that that's where I've put a lot of myself into my work and that's what I've really enjoyed doing um, because that's how I've got better practicing 2D and 3D constantly and acting like this is a real book, this is a real game, this is a real website. Um, I think that that's the most important piece of advice that I can give because you know, if, if you don't have that, then you're just going to be teaching yourself things and they're not going to mean so much, I would say. I think that's brilliant advice because I can think back to tons of times when I was learning how to model, but I didn't really have a passion project for that. Yeah. And so I fell, not that I was really ever in love with it, but I never really pursued it more than I needed to um, for yeah. what I was doing. I was more on like the production side yeah. uh, and story side of things and design. So I was more interested in that stuff. I wasn't, you know, so I didn't really have that. So that, that's a great, I guess a great piece of advice. Have your passion project where everything that you're working on is, is also acting as you're, you're learning by doing. Yeah. Cause I think unless, unless you have that, you're a bit blind and kind of in the dark. I mean, if you're just modeling for the sake of modeling, you're like, Oh, okay. 
I'm modeling a brick for a house. This is incredibly boring, but now I'm modeling a sword that could be used in a Lord of the Rings game. You know, I'm going to have all this detail etched into it and it's going to glow and we're going to animate it and it's going to spin around and, you know, we're going to be able to zoom in on it. And, you know, something that would be like, that would be something that I would be really interested in doing. And I'd be like, I'm going to make that sword the best sword that I can possibly do you know like it has to be something that you're passionate about something you really really like even something that you've seen out there that you want to replicate you know that could be the passion project it doesn't have to be something completely brand new it could be that you just want to get it exactly like the sword that you saw in the amazon you know series that i'm going to watch tonight <laughs> <laughs> nice well that's, that's like i said wonderful advice and Katie, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. Um, this was really enlightening and it's a great story and congratulations on all your success and perseverance. Um, I think it's very inspiring. Uh, is there anything, any plugs you want to give at the end of the show, maybe for people to find Omni or any of your work that you're doing now at uh, Fusebox? Uh, now is a great time to plug anything you'd like. Yeah, I mean, um, I really am going to start ramping up Omni again. Um, the website's um, omnithegame.co.uk. Um, I'm looking to <laughs> really get back into it, and I really want to get the book published as well. So there'll be lots of illustrations coming up that are going to be in the book. I'm going to release little snippets, some little short stories from the book as well. Um, so hopefully that will drum up some interest. Um, I'm even looking to maybe rent one of those billboards and uh, put a big piece of artwork up there uh, when it's published, of course. But but yeah, that's that's definitely, I'm still looking at my passion project, even though it started in 2016, we're still going. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm ready to uh, release that to the world for sure. That's great. I can't wait to see it. And um, this was a lot of fun, Katie. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. All right, that's going to wrap up our show. We want to thank Katie for being our guest this week. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can find links to our Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.